This morning on Palm Sunday, we are going to digress from our sermon series through the book of Acts and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, for the record of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that first day of the week of Passover in the concluding year of his earthly ministry. So I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to John chapter 12 for the reading of verses 12 through 26. Let us give our full attention to the reading and hearing of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have not left us to ourselves, but in your great love and rich mercy, you sent your beloved Son into the world to be for us the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his name, we pray for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon us afresh and anew, for the empowerment of the proclamation of the gospel, and for our hearts and minds to receive it indeed, to receive Christ anew, for the saving of our souls and the glory of your name. Amen. John chapter 12, let us hear the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is, the Passover in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written in the prophet Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason that the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Spring has sprung in northeast Louisiana, and it is beautiful indeed. Out of the darkness, dormancy, and death of winter, Life springs again. It is a gift of the Creator. It is a sign given to us by the Creator. And only a sign because the cyclical renewal of nature is a sign that points to something deeper, greater, and permanent, for which the human heart longs. We long to be made new again. We long for life eternal, for the victory of life over death. It is instilled in and inscribed upon our hearts. And the rebirth of nature in springtime speaks to us of that, calls to us as it were. But there is no power in nature that can bring life out of death. That power belongs only to the one in whom is life, to the one who is Himself, life, to the only one over whom death has no power. And that is what this passage is all about. The one who brings life out of death, indeed, the one whose death gives life. It was the first day of the week of Passover. Jerusalem was filled with hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims who had journeyed there to celebrate the feast commemorating the exodus from Egypt. But in Jesus' day, it was not an Egyptian pharaoh, but a Roman Caesar who ruled over the Jews. The Jews, in this case, were captives in their own land. And so as they remembered what God had done for them in the past, they longed for God to rescue them again in the present. They awaited their deliverer. They longed for their Messiah. We call today Palm Sunday 
in remembrance of that day when the Jewish people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem waving palm branches. Now, palm branches were a symbol of victory and peace, a nationalistic symbol of Jewish liberation, victory. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowd cried out with the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us. And they exclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious and political fervor of Jerusalem swirled around Jesus. Great expectations <laughs> as he rode the little donkey into the holy city. Now, the fact that Jesus rode a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 should have been a clue, should have been enough to let the people, and particularly the leaders of the Jews, know that, that Jesus had no plans for a military revolution against Rome. No warrior, no warrior goes into battle riding a donkey. Now, the, the thing is, in the ancient world, only a king who had already conquered his foes would ride a donkey into the conquered city offering peace to all who would welcome his rule. So by riding a donkey into Jerusalem before the battle, Jesus was doing something that just really did not make any sense from this world's perspective. It was all backwards. He rode in as a victorious king, but the battle had not yet even begun, at least not from the earthly perspective. And that's because Jesus was the king of the cross. He was going to win the victory, not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. So when we refer to this event as the triumphal entry, we must remember that the triumph was really, at this point, a hidden triumph, a paradoxical triumph. At this point, no one, not even his disciples, understood that his triumph would come through his death that his glorification would be revealed through his humiliation. They did not understand or believe that their life depended upon his death, that without his death, they would never have life. But that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is really all about, the death that brings forth life. We all know that in the natural scheme of things, life, <laughs> life bears the fruit of death. 
in this fallen world. Life bears the fruit of death. But what we have in the gospel is the reversal of that cursed natural process. Jesus' death brings forth the fruit of life. Now, Jesus, you know, had already begun to teach his disciples this paradoxical mystery. And, and on this occasion, after entering Jerusalem, he told them again in a rather unusual way. Here's what happened. John tells us that some Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, came to Philip with a request, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, these men were what were known as God-fearers, Gentiles who respected and followed various tenets of Judaism, including the worship of the one true God. But John wants us to see the irony at play here. While the leaders of the Jews were plotting the death of Jesus, these Gentiles were requesting to see him. Speak with him. While official Judaism was rejecting Jesus, the Gentiles were looking for him and coming to him. They were, they were among the Jewish people who were placing their faith in him. And this was a dramatic picture of the gospel, you understand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are seeing that verse, John 3, 16, being enacting, enacted, as it were, right here in this passage. So when Andrew and Philip told Jesus about these Greeks, these Gentiles who wanted to see him, Jesus replied in a rather, uh, in a rather strange way, if I might put it like that, it's speaking about his death. But making the point, you see, that his death would give life to all who believe in him. Surely it must have befuddled them. Master, these Gentiles would like to see you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Hmm? Note there that Jesus himself uses an illustration from nature to teach the gospel. 
And when Jesus said the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he, he was speaking of his death on the cross. The hour has come, the appointed time. He knew that the time had now come for him to accomplish his mission for which the Father had sent him into the world. The time, the hour had come for him to offer up his life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now just remember that throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, there had been various attempts to do away with him, to capture him, various plots and conspiracies, but they could never pull it off. Why? Because his time had not yet come, and he was the sovereign Lord. And now the sovereign Lord says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he used that illustration from nature when he spoke of the grain of wheat that must fall into the earth and die in order to bear much fruit. So in these verses, we hear Jesus speaking clearly about the purpose of his life through which he would be glorified and ultimately through which the Father would be glorified, namely, to die a death that would bear much fruit, to die a death that would bring forth life, eternal life for all who believe in him. Now, I, I know that uh, in this congregation, you, you would certainly affirm what I'm about to say, but uh, let's, let's, let's just take a minute to, to note here the, the significance. Jesus is, is speaking of his mission, what he came into the world to do, and the hour has come. So it shows us clearly, brothers and sisters, that Jesus certainly did not think that he had come into the world as just another spiritual sage, a religious teacher, or an ethical philosopher. Now, you know, you might hear so much today about the common themes of the world's great religions or about some spiritual truths or ethical principles that are shared by all the world's religions. And, and, and that is true to some degree. There is some overlap. We don't debate that. But, but to go further and say that that means that all the world's religions teach essentially the same thing as though all the world's religions show us that there are many ways to God and we simply need to find the way that suits us best as though Jesus were just one example among many. Well, let's mark it. That is not how Jesus understood himself. That is not what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said that he came into the world to die. To die a death that would 
bear the fruit of life. And no one else has ever done that. And no one else ever will. So as the world tries to find its way to God, the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that God has found his way to us. He's come to us as one of us to seek and to save us, to rescue and redeem us. He's come as our king, our conquering king, humble and mounted on a donkey, the king of peace, the king of the cross whose death gives life. Among all the religions of the world, only in the gospel of Jesus Christ will you hear the good news of salvation. That God became a man who died to bring forth the fruit of eternal life. This is the unique declaration of the gospel that God himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the reality of human flesh and blood has dealt with human sin, my sin. The things for which I stand before God rightly judged as guilty. God himself has executed justice on my sin. Has done all that was necessary in, in order to atone for and wipe away and forever do away with the sin that would separate me from God. And that's the gospel for you. It means that God himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the reality of human flesh and blood has done all that is necessary to deal with and do away with the sin that brings death upon you and me. And God the Father did that by laying our sins on his son Jesus Christ. Nailing our sins to Jesus on the cross. It was our sins that put him there. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree and he died. He tasted the fruit of our sins and swallowed it whole in order to destroy the power of death over us. He died to bring forth life in order to, he died in order to bear much fruit, much fruit, eternal life for whosoever believes in him. There's, there's something else as well. There's, there's a part two here. There's a so what here. There's a so what. In this encounter, in, in, in this very statement that he made, in the same breath as it were, Jesus told Philip and Andrew, and Jesus tells you and me that this paradoxical principle of his death bringing forth life 
must also be a pattern in the lives of all who are truly his disciples. To serve Christ is to follow him. To follow him is to give up one's own life to him and for him. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the so what. This is the therefore. This is the call to discipleship. This is the call to respond with the totality of our lives to the one whose death gives life. Jesus issued this call to discipleship at various points throughout his ministry with the same emphasis. For example, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to die. Here's here's the pattern. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to die, to lay down our lives before him, to surrender our lives to him in order to receive the life, the true life, the life that really is life, which his death gives to all who believe in him. But if we love our own life, that is, if we live a self-centered and self-serving and self-glorifying, self-seeking life for ourselves, if we cling to our lives in this world with the prideful presumption that we are the lords of our lives, this is my life. And that all that matters are our own rights, privileges, pleasures, and the things that we deserve. And that the whole purpose for living is for us to acquire as much and to rule over as much of this world as possible. So that we go our own way and do our own thing and claim our life as our own possession to do with as we please in order to please ourselves. Jesus says, we will lose our lives for all eternity. The wages of sin is death. And that death is not the end. It is an eternity of death. But Jesus said, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, to hate one's life in this context does not mean, it does not mean 
to despise ourselves or to deride ourselves with self-loathing and groveling low self-esteem. It simply means that in relation to the kingdom of God, in relation to knowing and serving Jesus Christ and living the life of eternal life through him, the things of this world are counted as nothing. It's very much like what the Apostle Paul said of himself in his letter to the Philippians. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And in Galatians chapter 6, the apostle wrote, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, this world has nothing to offer to me for the satisfaction of my soul. What it means is that there's simply nothing in this world and no life in this world that compares to the life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent into the world. He is the reality that makes life worth living because in him is life, life eternal. Therefore, Jesus says that whoever hates his life in this world, whoever surrenders his life to the kingdom of Christ, in that sense will keep it for eternal life. And so you see, believing in Christ as Savior, receiving him as Lord and submitting to him as king. And I don't, I don't refer now only to or merely to a, 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 an initial one-time conversion. I'm talking about taking up one's cross daily and following him, you see. Being a Christian requires a real death. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to die every day, to die a spiritual death, no longer to live for ourselves, the death of our own personal pride. You can make your own applications. The death of our own personal righteousness. Oh, what a good boy am I. The death of our own personal power and control the death of our own personal agenda, the death of our own personal lordship over our lives. This is what true repentance and faith in Christ entails. It is dying to self, putting that self-will to death, putting that self-glory to death in order to receive the life that Jesus gives us by his death. You will never truly live, neither in this world nor the next, unless you first die to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ. For this very reason, C.S. Lewis wrote, die before you die. There is no chance after.
In the same passage, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Well, Jesus is making it clear right here in this passage. Follow him in his way. A grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies. Jesus calls us to follow him in this world along the same path that he himself walked, the path of self-denial, the path of humble obedience, the path of faithfulness to the end, the path that includes suffering and cross-bearing. This, the path of obedience to the word of his Father. This is the path that leads to glory where he is with his Father and this is his promise. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's 21st century America. Do you believe that? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you believe that it is worth turning away from the world's glory for the sake of the glory that is yet to be revealed? Do you believe that it is worth being humbled that you might be exalted by God? Do you believe that it's, it's worth dying a death to self in order to be given the life of Christ? Do you believe that being honored by the Father is worth being dishonored by this world? Do you believe that it is worth following Christ through your life in this world, following him in the path of self-denial, cross-bearing, obedience, suffering, and persecution for the sake of being with him in his glory with the Father for all eternity? Do you believe that it is better to forego the honor and glory of this world in order to receive the honor of the Father in the presence of of his glory with Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus knew that his hour had come. The time for him to offer up his life like a grain of wheat falling into the ground to bear much fruit. His death is the death that gives life, life eternal to all who follow him. Jesus entered Jerusalem that day to conquer his enemies, not by shedding their blood, but by shedding his own. That applies to us today as well. His death gives us life. So let us follow him. Let us take up our cross daily and die every day for his sake in the assurance that his death gives us life everlasting. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who in obedience to you and love for us gave up his life that we might live in and through and with him forever. We pray that your Holy Spirit would deepen the likeness of Christ in us and conform us more nearly to his image. 
And help us to live in such a way that by our words and by our deeds, more and more people will come to know that in him is life and life everlasting. To the glory of your name, amen. In response to the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Beloved Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who, though he 